0: Hey Keto Freaks, in case you haven't heard, Richard Morris and I are turning the entire town of New London, Connecticut ketogenic in July 2017. Keto Fest isn't a conference. Conferences are for professionals. Festivals are for people. We will have some great speakers, yes, but also a pig roast, music, movies, cooking lessons, fitness lessons, bike tours, walking tours, and a whole lot of camaraderie among fellow ketonians. Richard and I will both be there, as will many of our podcast guests and Facebook group admins. There's so much going on, I don't have time to tell you here. So go to ketofest.com and add your name to the mailing list so you'll know where to go and when in order to get your tickets. KetoFest, real keto for real people. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 70-ish pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris
1: in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet for over two years. Actually, two and a half years. Yeah. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 70 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around.
0: So this show is a document of my progress through nutritional ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for two and a half years in nutritional ketosis. Yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking.
1: Sure, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. So we've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claims that we make.
0: You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We love to cook and we love to eat. Every episode, we both share a keto recipe that can't be ignored. Oh no, it can't. (laughs) So let's start podcast episode thirty-three: the protein controversy. Cue the scary music. It's actually pretty funky for scary music, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week?
1: Yeah, Carl. Last week was the female <laughs> show, and Kim Howerton referred to a podcast that discussed how women lose weight slower than men. Yeah. This is a lecture by Robert Hughes at the Cape Town LCHF conference, and we've linked to it in last week's show notes.
0: And we should say that Q's is pronounced Q's, but it's spelled C-Y-W-E-S.
1: Actually, I have no idea how it's pronounced. It's it's probably Welsh because they like using W's and Y's for vowels, but... uh,
0: Yeah, it's got uh, too many vowels to be Welsh. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, that's where you can find it. Also, I said that if a mother eats a high carb diet while pregnant, the baby may have a predisposition toward insulin sensitivity. Oops. What I meant, of course, was insulin resistance. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you guys figured that out.
1: Also, Brenda clearly said that Dr. Fung referred to a prevalent myth that women cannot fast. She didn't say that Dr. Fung said that women cannot fast, and she certainly didn't say that women cannot fast. Right. But her choice of words may have been a little unclear, but her intent was to refer to the myth.
0: Yes. So let's recap what a ketogenic diet is. A ketogenic diet is any diet that puts you into a state of nutritional ketosis, but we have been following the macros suggested by Volek and Finney in the Art and Science of Low-Carb Living.
1: Yeah, which is essentially the Bible for for a, a, a lot of people. And they invented the term nutritional ketosis and they did a lot of the original science on it and they got people like uh, Tim Noakes and others into it. So mm. these are like the original source. And their macronutrient breakdown is 20 grams of carbs no more protein scales with how much lean body mass you have and we use one gram to 1.5 grams per kilo of lean body mass which is what they recommend in their book uh, the art and science of low carbohydrate living mm-hmm. and finally fat to satiety so you get all of your energy from fat and I'm, a, I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize what a ketogenic diet is in haiku form.
0: No oh, yeah. bring it on.
1: Here we go. yeah when hungry you eat. Mostly fat with some protein. Stop when you are full. That is so great. <laughs> so that's my that's my new motto. Get no in high Q. Q. <laughs> so Carl, how did you do this week?
0: I had a pretty good week. As you know, um because I said it on the last week's show, I quit all alcohol. I basically yeah. stopped drinking. Wow. And I figure, you know, I had my fun drinking the first fifty years of my life. The second fifty, <laughs> I'm dedicating to uh I almost want to say clean living, but yeah. that sounds so religious, that's it not- does It does, <laughs>
1: Yeah, you're yeah, not going to be a monk.
0: No, not no. at all. Monks don't eat what I eat, let's put it that way. <laughs> sure. Maybe they do actually, I don't know. But um, yeah, I've dedicated the second half of my life to helping as many metabolically deranged people as I possibly can see the light about what metabolism really is and how it yeah. works.
1: That's awesome, Carl. I'm doing the same. I've spent the first 50 years looking after myself, and I'm going to spend the next 50 years trying to help others.
0: Yep, exactly. So I gave up alcohol, and mm-hmm. a week, couple of weeks ago, I gave up nuts and wine. Oh, yeah. And then I just decided to go full full bore. So now I'm actually losing weight again, and that's well really good because, as you know, we've both stalled scale-wise, but we've been sure. reducing our waistlines.
1: yeah. Yeah, I've, I, uh, I've been stalled for quite some time, or at least it's not really a stall. It's more going up and down the same 10 pounds. Yeah. But in that, in that time over those two years, my waist size, my waistband measurement has gone from a size 46 to a size 36. So, that's so cool. It, you know, that's a major difference.
0: So isn't that weird that you cannot lose weight on the scale and yet lose 10 inches off your waist?
1: Yeah, see, I think that's mostly muscles. I, I'm doing a lot of cycling, and uh, you know, we 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 know that uh, fat is less dense than muscle, and so you're going to lose size mm. when you change muscle uh, fat for muscle. Yep. And I think that's that's predominantly what's happening. It's just interesting that the body is just uh, saying, "Yeah, you know, I really like this weight. We're going to move things around a bit. We're going to remove some fat. We're going to add a little bit of muscle, mm. but we're going to keep around about the same weight." It's quite uh, fascinating.
0: Yeah, it is. So I lost four pounds this week. So th- there Love you that. go. There's the mm. there's the scale victory. Yeah. Um, another really interesting thing happened this week. As I said a couple weeks ago, I decided to dedicate the second half of my life to helping people. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm going to be doing, hopefully on a regular basis, uh, besides Keto Fest, which we're going to do every year, sure, uh, is a keto retreat. Wow. So we had this idea. In the admin group to sort of get a bunch of people together and rent a house yep. and and cook together and learn together and all of that stuff. But I didn't want it to turn into a social event for those who have been successful with keto. What right. I really want to do is get people who are new to it, yeah. who need that guidance during the first week, which is really critical.
1: Yeah, that first week's the worst, isn't
0: it? It is. And there's so many metabolically deranged people out there. I'm sure there's people that our listeners know of who they've been mm. casually suggesting, you know, blah blah blah, and getting resistance from because people don't want to commit; they're afraid of it, right?
1: Yeah. Well, most of our listeners are very proactive, and they're heading, you know, straight into their diet and doing as much as they can. But they've got lots of family members who share genetics and uh, yeah. probably have trouble. So, you know, that's uh, that's an ideal. I guess an opportunity, you know, if you have a family member who's uh, who, who really needs to get away for a week and learn some of their stuff in a yeah. group, then that's probably an ideal
0: right. opportunity. Right. I mean, the whole idea is that for less than the price of a Disney cruise, you can go away for a week mm. and make some new friends who are in the same boat that you're in, uh, learn yeah. how to take after yourself, probably more than likely lose a few pounds and yeah. learn how to cook and how to shop for yourself and, and even how to exist in the real world. I plan to take everybody to dinner at least two nights. Wow. One night yeah. will be like your standard Chili's kind of family restaurant where we can order steaks and wings and things like that. Sure. And then at the last day, I want to take everybody to a place called Texas de Brazil. Did I mention this is in Las Vegas? Oh,
1: really? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Las Vegas is great because I originally wanted to do it in Connecticut because it'd be convenient for me. But um, in January, which is when I want to do this, which lines up perfectly with many people's New Year's resolutions. Sure. Second week in January, the 8th to the 14th. In Connecticut, it can get a little snowy and a little bad weather.
1: It's pretty, but, you know, it's not going to be any good if you can't fly in there.
0: Yeah, that's right. It could get canceled, and that would be Mm. bad. So not only that, but flights to Vegas are cheap from just about everywhere in the United States or even the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can take an Uber or a cab to the house, which is about 20 minutes away from the Strip. Nice. And, uh, you know, it's a nice commitment device. They've got a big kitchen. It's a huge place. It'll fit uh, 10 guests. So I only have 10 spots. Nice. Yeah. There's a pool, a spa, a massage chair, great big TVs. And, you know, we can watch uh, the, the critical science and movies and stuff in the evenings. Awesome. Of course, great internet access. You could be online working the whole time if you really want to. Yeah. And uh, that's it. So if you're interested in this, and like I say, it's first come first serve. I've only got 10 spots. You can learn more and sign up at Awesome. So how
1: was your week? Yeah, I'm actually doing really well. I'm currently on day three of my fast. Mm. I'm in hour 49 of my fast and uh, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling on top of the world. Uh, on day three, that's tomorrow, I'm going to ride for 100k. Now, normally after I've done a long ex- uh, bike ride, uh, I normally have some Wagyu steak. I break my fast <laughs> and I have a really nice, uh, have a really nice steak. But I've decided this time instead of eating after my bike ride, I'm going to continue fasting for an additional two days. Oh. Um, and then next week I, I turn, I turn 51. So yeah. I'm going to break my fast and have a Wagyu steak on my birthday.
0: Wagyu steak is kind of like steak flavored fat, right?
1: <laughs> it, it really is.
0: It's delicious. <laughs> delicious. That sounds yes. great. So,
1: so, so I'm 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 in a fasting mode, and um, we uh, we actually did a little recording yesterday, and that was on day two. And man, I was so brain dead. Well, maybe not brain dead, but I was just I I had a real trouble getting started that uh, for that recording. But today, I am just you know I'm I've. All, all pistons are firing.
0: Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what Dr. Jason Fung said. Yeah. Typically, don't do it for two days. That's the hardest time. And yeah. get through the second day, and, and it's smooth sailing, and there you go. Yeah.
1: I tell you who's done it for more than two days, Tom ceased.
0: 21 days, right?
1: <laughs> I know. He's one of our admins for the for the uh, the group on Facebook which you can get to at fb.2keto.com. And
0: yeah, he he rode the entire time and he also just ate a couple of shrimp and some kimchi every day. So it wasn't you could argue whether it was a fast or not, but uh, who yeah. cares? And he lived on body fat for 21 days and also
1: used that body fat to propel him around on his bike, and he did it with a vegan friend, Mm. uh, and the vegan friend lasted, I think, two or three days. Mm. Um, It just goes to show you when you have access to your body fat, when you're ketogenic, you have a very large um, fuel source.
0: Yeah, and uh, that is germane to what we're going to talk about after we do a section we call... Mail! (laughs)
1: never gets old <laughs> no okay so jason sent us uh, an email to say uh so i'm a non-diabetic 32 year old male that has lost 40 pounds since march doing keto well done jason I'm not happy with the sources that I have found on the dawn effect for non-diabetics.
0: And the dawn effect is where your glucose rises in the morning, typically.
1: Yeah, it it does. And there's, he says that there's a few sources and the information seems vague, probably due to a lack of people checking their blood. Mm. Uh, my morning levels of blood glucose are always elevated uh, around 100 to 105, dropping back to 75 to 90 during the day. Mm. However, if I had a long workout, such such as a long bike ride or intense lifting the day before, I will see blood Mm. glucose climb uh, by the next morning. Does the liver release glucose while fasted to aid in repair of muscle tissue? Um, Yesterday evening I was at 66 milligrams per deciliter post-exercise, that exercise being a 25-mile bike ride, Mm -hmm. and around 80 milligrams per deciliter a few hours later before bed. When I woke up this morning, I was at 118. Huh. Yeah, so there's two things that could be happening here, Jason. Uh, One is uh, an effect called the Somoji effect, uh, which is... uh defined as a post-hypoglycemic hyperglycemia which is basically huh. your, your blood sugar goes too low and your liver overcorrects by making too much glucose to, to raise it and uh, you end up having high glucose in the morning because your blood glucose went low while you're asleep and your liver tried to compensate by making some glucose for you.
0: And that kind of swing we're all too familiar with as metabolically deranged people, right?
1: Yeah, it's mostly for diabetics and it's a, and I suspect that It happens mostly for type 2s who have very overactive livers. We're all, us type 2 diabetics are very good at making glucose in our livers.
0: As well we should be.
1: Yeah, the other thing that it could be is wake-up hormones. Now- Mm -hmm. Our bodies produce fight-or-flight hormones uh, in the morning to get us up quickly so that we can avoid being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so basically what happens is uh, as you wake up, your body produces cortisol and adrenaline. These are all produced in the adrenal glands, and uh, they're all driven by your pituitary gland in your brain. And this causes your liver to make extra glucose. Okay. And it also release any that it's got stored. So um it's basically uh, first thing in the morning uh, your, uh, your brain is saying, let's get you up quickly so that you don't wake up groggy and potentially fall prey to some animal. So yeah. the idea is to move very quickly from sleep to alertness.
0: Excellent. So maybe... Exercise first thing in the morning might be a good idea to get rid of some of that glycogen.
1: Absolutely. Uh, It's always a good idea, especially if you've got muscles, you can sink that glucose by just using them. So go for a walk, go for a bike ride, hop on the stationary rower, hop on the exercise bike, um, You know, Mm. go for a swim. All of these things are good things in the morning. If your glucose is high and you want to lower it quickly, that's a great way to do it.
0: Very cool. Well, I went looking on iTunes for reviews and ratings. Sure. Because- uh, that uh, and, and the reason I went looking instead of I'm always looking is because I don't really use iTunes.
1: Yeah, I've got to admit, I don't either. I've got an Android phone, so I, I don't have much need to go to iTunes.
0: But iTunes is kind of important for us only because those ratings that people give us mm. drive the relevance um, when people search for podcasts based on keywords like ketogenic or anything like that.
1: Yeah. A lot of our listeners all have iPhones and... They probably found us by typing keto into the search dialogue on iTunes, and yeah. what gets us to the top of that list is ratings.
0: Right. So so as far as ratings, I have some bad news, Richard.
1: Okay, I'm bracing myself.
0: We have one four-star review. Uh, four hmm. out of what? Four out of five. Uh, that's pretty good, though, isn't it? Well, it's better than nothing. But guess what? We have 27 five-star ratings.
1: (laughs) That's outstanding. Thank you very much, people.
0: (laughs) And no three-star, two-star, or one-star ratings at all.
1: I suspect that one-star ratings would actually be just as good because it's – It's not having any ratings. don't give them any ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. Five stars, five stars. Don't try the science.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, of those 27, 19 left reviews, which are basically just comments, right? Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. And here's just one review left on September 4th by somebody calling themselves, My Dog is Amazing. (laughs) I'll bet it is. (laughs) All right. So My Dog is Amazing says, I really like how unpretentious these guys are. Well, thank you. Thank you. They admit to an occasional screw-up, but get back mm-hmm. on track and keto on. Yep. Yep. To me, that makes them great role models. They just seem so chill, like people you'd want to share a zero-carb alcoholic beverage with.
1: I'm up for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, knock yourself out. Yeah. The information <laughs> okay. is good, Sorry. too. I listen when I exercise, and it keeps me inspired to continue keto. So keep up the good work, guys that's it thank you very much (laughs) yeah very good so if Two Keto Dudes has been helpful to you uh, help everybody else find us by leaving a rating Mm. on iTunes so how do we approach this subject of the protein controversy the controversy isn't among us you and me no no. it's among the experts the and we found this out doing the protein show that uh, well there's three controversies going on isn't there yeah
1: there is. There's, the first one is how much protein we should eat. And the second one is if you fast, do you lose muscle mass or do you catabolize your protein? And the third one is if you eat protein, does it turn into sugar in your body? Mm. And all three are controversial. So let's take these one at a time. The first one comes from the Low Carb Vale Conference in 2016. And okay. there, was, there was a presentation by Ron Rosedale, uh, who gave a very interesting uh, presentation on the evolution of life on Earth and how we evolved uh, the ability to die, the ability to eat, and, and the mechanism behind uh, insulin. And he basically came to the conclusion during that presentation that we really should eat as little protein as we can get away with, mm. absolute minimum. And this was quite controversial because... Um, Finney and Vollick say between 1 and 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Right. And the recommended dietary intake is a minimum of 0.8 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. And Ron Ron Rosedale is saying eat much less than that. And there was an article recently from Jason Fung who said around about 0.6 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. And there's an excellent um, video by Peter Atter being interviewed by Rhonda Patrick, and the title of that is "Macronutrient Thresholds for Longevity," and he argues that you should eat as little protein as you can get away with. So, and there are Facebook groups that argue that you should have as much as you can tolerate. Yeah. And of course, Atkins—we all know Atkins was—you know—eat as many steaks as you want, just don't eat the potatoes. So, right. Um, you know, and that, I got to admit, when I did Atkins in 2004. Uh, One
0: of the reasons that I stopped doing Atkins was I was just feeling nauseous eating so much protein. So, I agree. My doctor told me she has seen many of her patients go on low-carb diets before and quote-unquote wreck themselves. Wow. And this is what you're talking about. They overeat protein Mm. and they shy away from fat. Just because you can eat fat, people are still so afraid of it. That's right. That they're going to get heart disease and all that stuff that they can't bring themselves to eat it just like they would eat meat or lean?
1: I've got to say that for me, uh, for the first – well, I've been doing this now for 30 months uh, and this has worked for me uh, between 1 and 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean body mass and then eating fat to satiety. I Mm. eat fat until I'm no longer hungry, you know, and – that's worked for me. Uh, it has reversed my diabetes. That happened within five months. Yeah. Uh, it, it also uh, reversed my hypertension as well, and that happened within a couple of weeks. Yeah. It also cured my fatty liver. Uh, I have a, a, a CT scan before and after, and one has fatty liver and the other doesn't. Mm. And I went from super obese category, BMI category, to overweight BMI category. So, you know, that's that has met a lot of my uh, objectives, so...
0: And the same for me and, uh, almost right down the line, except I didn't have a before and after fatty liver diagnosis, but, uh, I can right. assume that that is the case. Yeah. So what I don't see is conditions put on these, rec- you know, basic ideas about how much protein we should eat. What I di- what I don't see, and I'm beginning to see this I'm from Jason Fung. Jason says, if you are obese, diabetic have a lot of body fat and you're not building muscle, you're not doing serious weight training, mm. that kind of thing, yeah. then you should eat low protein. And he recommends just a little bit higher than Ron Rosedale does, you know, something like 0.5 or less grams per kilogram. And that's what he said in this article that we're going to link to. That's right. But the weight lifters... Uh, require more protein. So that makes sense for, you know, the the, the the lifters who are saying we don't eat enough protein, you know, yeah. because they, they obviously need to synthesize more.
1: Yeah. I've actually done some calculations, uh, some math on this exact question. And I, I was really looking into the second of our controversies, which is how long to fast and not lose muscle mass. Mm. And I've I came up with some interesting math that is actually going to probably shed a little bit of light on these things. Okay. So that controversy also came from low-carb veil, and we'll link to the videos on our show notes. But the first is from Steve Finney, and Steve Finney said that anybody who is fasting loses a quarter of a pound of protein per day while they're fasting. Mm. And he said that he didn't agree with uh, Dr. Fung, Jason Fung, and uh, he said that the, the reason for that was probably because they used different data. So I looked at the data that, St- that Stephen Finney was using, and his data comes from George Cahill's starvation in man studies. And this looked at normal people in the 70s. And if you've ever looked at, say, pictures of the crowd at Woodstock, mm. you don't see anybody there who we would think of as being normal weight. Everybody looks skinny as a rake.
0: Except and- for wavy gravy
1: yeah yeah one or two exceptions but but uh, but just about everybody looks what we would consider these days to be thin yeah and I would argue that that is probably how people should normally be um, mm. and
0: his data was from that group uh, fairly lean and that makes sense doesn't yeah. it because lean people when they fast have less body fat to use for fuel
1: that's right and the other side of the argument is Jason Fung also from low carb Vale and we'll link to that Video presentation as well, and his yeah. data is his own clinical data of over a thousand people who've come into his uh, treatment and have been put on fasts and have and, and nobody's complained about muscle loss or, or protein loss.
0: And the reason they're in his clinic is because they're overweight and or diabetic. Absolutely, and his
1: comment is: "Are we burning muscle? Hell no! Right? It goes up slightly at the very beginning and then drops. Protein is not a storage form of energy." Yeah. So we know that protein is really an emergency form of energy. When you don't have energy from anywhere else, Yeah. your body will use protein because it, because it needs energy to keep you alive.
0: So what I really find interesting is that you've been able to figure out a sort of a unifying hypothesis that explains both Finney's position and Fung's position.
1: Yes, they're actually both correct. I believe that they're both correct, and I think I can show it in math. Okay. So- we know that the brain needs about 600 kilocalories of energy just to not fall into a coma.
0: Right. And
1: I don't, I, I'm not sure of the precise amount. It's between 400 and maybe 500 kilocalories, but it's in that range. But let's say it's 600 kilocalories of, uh, of energy. Okay. So we know in ketosis that 80% of your brain's energy can come from ketones and 20% can come from glucose. Yeah. I've done the math on that and uh it roughly works out to be about 80 grams of ketones and 51 grams of glucose. Hmm. So we know that we need 51 grams of glucose to come from somewhere uh to keep your brain from going falling into a coma. Hmm. So we going we know that we make glucose in the liver and we know that the substrate for that will be either glucogenic amino acids or it could be glycerol which is a metabolic uh, waste product of uh, lipolysis so breaking down body fat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or it could be lactate or pyruvate. Lactate
0: is from dairy?
1: No, lactate is uh, part of the 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 muscle energy process. So when you have lactic acid, it's lactic acid. So you know oh, okay. you, you exercise your muscles and lactic acid builds up, that's lactate it's just making its way you. out of your out of your muscles and uh, And basically what it does is it works its way back to the liver and is uh, converted into glucose either by, I believe, the Cori cycle or gluconeogenesis. We'll both both use lactate to to
0: create glucose. All right. So there are a bunch of ways that we can get that glucose.
1: That's right. So, But let's concentrate on the first two. There's the amino acids, the glucogenic amino acids, and then there's glycerol. Now, glycerol is um, part of a triglyceride. So when your body cells, your fat cells, store energy, they store it in the form of triglycerides, which is a glycerol backbone and three fatty acids stuck to it. Yeah. And when they release that energy for your body to use, uh, body fat as an energy, what they do is they, uh, through a process called lipolysis, they de-esterify. So they split that glycerol and the three fatty acids, and the free fatty acids are then sent through the blood to uh, attach to albumin to, to be taken up by your cells to be used for energy. And then the glycerol is just a waste product that uh, circulates in the blood and is eventually taken up by the liver and used to make glucose. Okay. So that's that's where you get glucose to run your brain from burning fat. You also get glucose if you don't have enough glucose from burning fat to run your brain, you will then tap protein, and it's specifically glucogenic amino acids, it's not all of them, but some of them, but they will also be used to make glucose. Okay. So we know we have to produce 51 grams of glucose, and we can produce that either by burning fat and releasing glycerol, or by using protein. So we know, therefore, that we don't need to use any protein if we have sufficient glycerol from burning fat. Right. So it comes down to a question of how much body fat you have, or how much how much body fat you're breaking into fatty acids and glycerol. And it turns out that there is actually a study that gives us the limit for human fat oxidation. And basically, uh, this study was uh, Alpert twenty twenty o five, which we will have a link in the show notes. But this basically show went back over Ansel Keys starvation data. And using a little bit of calculus, it determined that the limit of energy that you can get from a pound of body fat is about 30.5 kilocalories per day. So, if you have ten pounds of body fat, you can get three hundred and five kilocalories of energy out of that ten pounds. If you have twenty pounds, you have uh, six ten you can get six hundred and ten kilocalories of body fat. If you have one hundred pounds, you can get three thousand kilocalories of body fat. And how much you can pull out of your body fat will determine how much leftover you need to to get from protein. Wow. If you have enough body fat, you don't need to use any protein to make that fifty one grams of glucose. okay and so that's that's really the critical thing.
0: Well, that explains Jason Fung's patients.
1: Right, because they had plenty of body fat.
0: And it also explains Finney's data, because they didn't have body fat, and so they were catabolizing their muscle.
1: Absolutely. So if you want to see the math done, or even do some of the math yourself, uh, f- check out our blog in the tools section, and you can get to there f- at tools.2keto.com. And that will, uh, I have a calculator on there that you can see how I did the math to produce that. So my hypothesis is, if you don't have enough body fat for sufficient lipolysis, you will need to use amino acids to make up the shortfall in substrate for obligate gluconeogenesis to keep your brain running. There is a saying that, uh, and I'm not sure it's entirely accurate, but a pound of fat is worth about 3,500 kilocalories. The thing is, Mm. you can only get 30.5 30.5 kilocalories from that every day. So it's going to take you, what, 100 days to fully deplete, deplete that uh, that pound of yeah. body fat, taking 30 kilocalories a day.
0: And it brings to mind uh, Angus Barbieri, the Scottish guy in the 60s, yeah. who fasted for 380 something days. 382 like a,
1: days, I think it was, yeah.
0: Yeah, just a, around a year. And uh, he went from, I don't know, uh, 400-something pounds to a regular weight. Yeah,
1: 180 pounds, yeah. Yeah. And he clearly couldn't have been losing a quarter of a pound per day of uh, lean body mass. Yeah. Right. Two interesting things pop out of that hypothesis of mine, and one is if you don't have enough body fat for sufficient lipolysis, you might be able to generate additional glycerol through dietary fat. Uh, so potentially if you eat a little fat while you're in a fast, you might lose less protein.
0: And this is if you don't have body fat. Right.
1: Or if you don't have enough body fat to, to be able to produce enough energy and also to produce enough uh, glycerol to be the, the basis for making glucose to keep your brain alive, then we, you have to have that 51 grams of glucose. So mm. it 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 flows necessarily, and there are other requirements for glucose in the body, like red blood cells and what have you. So eyeballs, right? So this is not the the sum of all of the obligate requirements, but this is certainly mm. this is enough to form the hypothesis. Wow, fascinating. The other interesting thing that comes out of this is if you have plenty of body fat, so you have enough body fat to be able to produce it at a rate, but you're not asking of it enough, so. If you have plenty of body fat but your total daily energy expenditure does not require sufficient lipolysis to produce all that glycerol, then you might need to increase your TDEE, your total daily energy expenditure, by doing a little cardio so as to not lose protein.
0: Cardio exercise as opposed to low-impact exercise?
1: Yeah, something that is going to increase the amount of calories that you're going to burn during that day. Got it. So, it could be as simple as if you if you're if you have plenty of body fat but you sit around like a couch potato all day, you may well be using protein because you're not burning enough for your own fat to be able to to do that, so you need to also burn some fat
0: interesting and you know my experience was that I went six months on this ketogenic diet without without intentional exercise yeah. now I did some you know unintentional exercise walking around walking yeah. around and you know playing gigs and stuff and hauling mm. gear and you know that kind yeah. of thing and being active yeah. Yeah. but i didn't do intentional exercise which is cycling you know working out lifting weights or any of that stuff sure. but but it did work it got me there and then mm. of course what happens is you sort of settle in and, and now you yeah. have a different strategy you we go through phases in this we lifestyle do.
1: yeah we do. and
0: and as I said last week, I just got to that point where I felt I had to move. I had to exercise. Yeah, you were compelled, <laughs> right? It's it's almost like uh, my body is a capacitor, if you understand <laughs> electronics. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's storing energy and it's holding it. And if you don't let a little out once in a while, something's something's gonna happen. <laughs> something's gonna
1: happen. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's that's uh, I same thing happened to me. I I I never thought I would be compelled to exercise. I never thought I'd enjoy it, and surprisingly, yeah. I actually do enjoy it.
0: All right, there's one other protein controversy. Yeah, it's actually to do with Jimmy Moore
1: and Adam Nally. They have a They also have a keto podcast, and mm-hmm. they talk a lot about how protein raises glucose, which lowers ketones, and their hypothesis is increasing the protein substrate for gluconeogenesis increases glucose. Yep. And there are a few people in the community who have taken objection to that, Uh, and have gone looking for the science. And uh, Tyler Cartwright is one, and Bill Lagacos has got a good post about this. And they've gone looking for the science to show that gluconeogenesis is not supply-driven, but in fact, it's demand-driven. Now, what do you mean by that? well supply driven means that if you have more substrates to make the gluconeogenesis the body will your liver will go ahead and just make turn it all into glucose and then just that glucose will be lying around uh, waiting for you to use it i see and the argument for being demand driven is that when your blood glucose goes low, your liver kicks in and starts making the glucose
0: however it can
1: however it can with whatever substrate is available exactly right. and and their argument is that uh, that glucose is Demand-driven. Mm. Now, Jimmy's got an of 1 experiment, which is himself, and he's been able to see uh, that when he eats protein, a higher amount of protein during the day, he produces less ketones and his mm-hmm. glucose goes higher. And Adam Nally has uh, thousands of people that he come through his practice who have seen exactly the same thing. So mm. that's the observation. The observation needs to be explained by the science. And saying that, hey, gluconeogenesis is not supply-driven um, does not explain the observation. All it does is explain why Jimmy's hypothesis, increasing protein substrate for gluconeogenesis, inclu- increases glucose. Mm. Explaining why that's incorrect.
0: Okay. So I've had
1: a look into this, and uh, it's interesting The the reason that we let's have a look at ketones to start off with. The reason we spill ketones is. That we have two things happening. We have a buildup of energy, acetyl-CoA in our mitochondria, because we have plenty of fuel. In this case, when you're in ketosis, you, you're, you're, it's beta oxidation of fatty acids that's building up this supply of energy. Okay. And the other thing that we have to have to make ketones is a depletion of a key metabolite in the Krebs cycle called oxaloacetate. And when that is depleted, what it does is it stops the, the, the cycle, the Krebs cycle and uh, your mitochondria turns that acetyl-CoA into ketones and and releases them. Hmm. So it's basically like a machine that has seized, and so the fuel is getting stored in a temporary tank to be used later on. Interesting. So the interesting thing is this metabolite oxaloacetate. So what actually depletes that? Anything that depletes that is going to cause ketones to be made if you have a, a lot of a fuel. So... One interesting thing is that gluconeogenesis in our liver, which is the process that makes glucose when you don't eat any, Mm -hmm. um, what it does is it consumes oxaloacetate. And this is one of the reasons why the liver makes ketones because the mitochondria in the liver have had their oxaloacetate uh, temporarily borrowed or maybe stolen <laughs> by gluconeogenesis. <laughs> and so what happens is that their Krebs cycle ceases up and and they spill uh, all of their energy as ketones. So I guess you could think of it as partially burned fat. But this yeah. happens to be a really good thing because this occurs when we're making glucose and we make glucose when glucose goes low. And when glucose goes low, the, the brain is likely to be needing energy. So making ketones, spilling them is a, is the ideal scenario.
0: So the question is, what determines the rate of gluconeogenesis?
1: Yeah, so Jimmy has said that the rate of gluconeogenesis is being determined by the availability of substrates, and the Mm. science has shown that that's actually not the case. The rate-limiting factor of gluconeogenesis is an enzyme called fructose-1,6-biphosphatase, or FB phase 1, and it's disinhibited by the hormones glucagon. And epinephrine, but that's a longer story. So glucagon is inhibited by insulin. So to cut a long story short, when your blood glucose goes low, insulin goes low and glucagon goes high. Yeah. Because we know that insulin and glucagon are a countervailing forces there. Yeah. So when glucagon goes high, this enzyme also goes high and your gluconeogenesis substrates get converted into glucose and oxaloacetate coincidentally gets permanently borrowed from the liver's mitochondria which are burning fat and therefore we spill ketones.
0: Now if they're permanently borrowed does that mean that it leaves the liver at a disadvantage somehow?
1: Yeah well it means that we that, that it means that the uh, the Krebs cycle doesn't complete and it means that the mitochondria and the liver have to spill ketones it, it makes ah. ketones. So, oh, so the the process of making gl- making glucose in the liver also makes ketones. then ketones and glucose are not opposites. They're actually m- made in the same uh, f- for the same reason. That is the the huh. uh, we don't have enough glucose in the in the in the
0: blood and we need energy. All right, so I get it. Glucose goes low, insulin goes low, glucagon yep. goes up, yep. new glucose goes up, and ketones go up. Exactly. So. F- From
1: a 1,000-yard view, this should all make sense. Your blood glucose goes low, we make more of it. And when we make more glucose, we make more ketones. And if we're keto-adapted, our brains run almost 80% on ketones and 20% on glucose.
0: So if you lower your production of ketones by, say, 25%, you increase the glucose required by 100%?
1: That's exactly right, because if you can imagine, if your brain is running 80% on ketones and 20% on glucose, if you were to drop the ketones for any reason by 25%, so you're dropping from 80% of your brain's energy running on ketones to 60% of your brain's energy, that necessarily means you've got to get that 20% from glucose. So your glucose then goes from 20% to 40%. So it's, so you can understand this is a, this is really a leverage point that as you drop ketones, the availability of ketones, your glucose moves at a much higher rate because of the fulcrum.
0: But being demand driven, you're not going to create too much. Your liver's going to create just enough glucose.
1: Yes, that's right. Your liver will make just as much. Your liver will make as much glucose as your brain is dropping out, is pulling out of your blood because it, it yeah. it's being demand driven by blood glucose going low.
0: So this is interesting because we're so used to a supply driven uh, metabolism, which ruins us, right? Yeah, There's an yeah. oversupply of glucose yeah. from from external sugar and all of that stuff. And really, when it's working well, it yeah. should be a demand-driven
1: absolutely uh,
0: metabolism.
1: Yeah, this is the basis for why uh, keto ke- the keto diet works really well for diabetics, because it's demand-driven so that we make glucose whenever we need it, rather than stuffing our blood full of it and hoping that insulin works to, to pack it away. Wow. So the interesting thing here is that... You remember oxaloacetate is this critical factor that's involved that's the the linchpin between making ketones and making glucose. Yeah. If if anything was to make any new oxaloacetate, what would actually happen? So if there is a process in your body that made oxaloacetate, it would mean that you're making glucose but you're not spilling ketones. Mm. And as we've already shown, As you reduce the amount of ketones by a small amount, you raise the amount of glucose that needs to be, needs to be made up to fill the shortfall by a larger amount. And so anything that increases oxaloacetate, makes oxaloacetate, uh, is going to require us to overproduce glucose, to produce a lot of it.
0: Interesting.
1: So if anything can make oxaloacetate for us, then we're screwed, right?
0: I'm, it sounds that way. So what makes oxaloacetate?
1: So there's two ways that I know of that that can replete that store of oxaloacetate. And the first is that glucose can make it via a condensation of pyruvate with carbonic acid. Uh, but as I learned from Chris Masterjohn's uh, Daily Lipid Podcast number 13... That process is inhibited in liver mitochondria by methylglyoxal, which we metabolize from the ketone acetone. So making ketones prevents any glucose laying about from stopping the process of making more ketones. So I, that's a good thing, right?
0: That's a great thing.
1: Yeah. So there is actually another way that we, make, we can make oxaloacetate, and that is the amino acid aspartate can also be transaminated enzymatically to make oxaloacetate.
0: Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's too early in the morning for words like that, Richard. Yeah. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so Transanimated?
1: What, I mean, what I mean is that uh that the availability of an amino acid, which is a building block of protein mm-hmm. called aspartate, one particular amino acid can be converted very easily into oxaloacetate in your mitochondria.
0: Okay. And so this Enzymatically the, means that there's an enzyme at play that uh, yeah. transmogrifies at some uh,
1: that's right. <laughs> transmogrification should be the term we use. So, yeah, okay. so I'm trying to be precise in the, uh, yeah. precise in this because I'm I'm sure that I'm, I'm hoping that people will listen to this who have a better understanding of this biochemistry than I have and can mm. can point out where I'm wrong in this. But as far as I can see, when we eat protein, that protein breaks down into amino acid building blocks, and one of those amino acids easily repletes oxaloacetate. And what that means is that we then produce glucose, but we don't produce, we don't spill ketones. And as we've seen, as soon as you start reducing the amount of ketones that are being produced, you dramatically increase the amount of glucose that is demanded. And this explains how Jimmy and Adam can observe a process where people who eat protein see a drop in their ketones and a significant increase in their glucose. And yet gluconeogenesis is still not a substrate-limited process. So if this is all true, then the steak probably is a chocolate cake, but not for the reasons that Jimmy and Adam suggested.
0: All right. Okay. <laughs> I'm still a little confused. What are the implications for your um, still overweight, uh, still maybe partially type 2 diabetic and mostly inactive uh, ketoer? If this is correct, and I'm hoping people come back to me and tell me
1: why it's not, but if it mm-hmm. is correct, then – you and I should have as little protein as we can get away with and not lose muscle mass.
0: Okay. So, in other words, Ron Rosedale and Jason Fung win for us.
1: And Peter Atia, yeah, for us. Yeah. And the situation is if you are lean and you don't have a lot of body fat, going back to the second controversy, if you're lean yeah. and don't have a lot of body fat, you probably need to eat some fat.
0: All right. Well, I think you're saying that everybody's right under certain conditions. That's Isn't that what you're saying? That's,
1: that's exactly what I'm saying, and I think I've got the math to show it. And if you go to com, you'll see some calculators going through my calculations.
0: Richard, you are a titan. Thank you for doing this research. <laughs> you're more than welcome. But we
1: have one more job.
0: Yes, we, yes, do, we do, and it's called Recipes! Recipes! recipes. <laughs> I recipe. All right, Richard, you're first. What you got?
1: Um, I've actually got a white chocolate drop. Now this is uh, this was actually an accident. Uh, I went to the shop to get some blueberries, and they had very large plump blueberries. and I, I was using these for my fennel salad. Uh, I chopped maybe five or six blueberries in a in a in a bowl full a fennel salad. Yep. Uh, because these were nice and plump, I didn't want to leave them in the bottom of the fridge until the next time I made salad because, They'd go sort of wrinkly and gnarly, and I wanted to use them up. So I, I, I went on the web to have a look to see what flavour combinations work well with blueberries because I wanted to invent something. And I found out that blueberries work really well with particular flavours. They work well with rosemary, which I found interesting. Mm. Uh, they work well with vanilla seeds, mm. and they work well with white chocolate. Mm. So I thought, I've got some rosemary. In fact, it's springtime here in Australia, and the rosemary bushes are all flowering. And as we know, flowers of herbs are more, normally more aromatic than the than the woody stems of the herbs themselves. So
0: That makes sense, I guess. That's why a lot of teas are made with uh, flowers.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think this is also why you don't find the flowers in stores because they don't ship very well. They don't hold up very well. They don't have very good shelf life. Okay. So I, I wanted to combine white chocolate, blueberries and rosemary and vanilla. Now, white chocolate is just cacao butter with powdered milk and a sweetener. So mm. I was able to make a low-carb, almost no-carb version of that by using full cream milk powder and uh, and using – I use sucralose, but you could use any sweetener. So I basically melted down some cacao butter, which is the fat in chocolate. Mm. I basically had a cup of cacao butter and I had six teaspoons of full cream milk powder. And that to me was a pretty good ratio. Didn't end up with too much milk sediment in the bottom. Cool. And I just added sweetness to, to flavor. So I made that. So that's the, that's the basis of the white chocolate. Now in the actual chocolate drops, I used a silicone mold and I put at the bottom of the mold a blossom of rosemary. I wanted the, the look of the chocolate to have the blossom on the outside. So I put it on the bottom of the molds, chuck a blueberry on top of that. I added the the, the vanilla seeds uh, from a vanilla from half a vanilla pod uh, to the white chocolate, uh, the melted white chocolate, and then I poured the melted white chocolate over the top. And you can see these on Two Keto Dudes uh, Boring Keto section, where we've got some uh, <laughs> keto recipes right. and keto food. Uh, but you can also see that on my blog, where I show you how I go through the process of making it.
0: Awesome! That sounds delicious.
1: Uh, They certainly were. So, Carl, what have you got for us?
0: Well, uh, as you could probably tell, we're into the fat bombs here today. Mm. And uh, I I have found that at the end of the day now, rather than having what I used to do, which was a couple glasses of wine, I have a little fat. And that has been working out really well for me. Chocolate mousse is a staple. I actually add a little – you want to get fancy with chocolate mousse, add a little cinnamon or even a little Mm. chili powder or both. Chili. Chili powder. Ooh. Goes really <laughs> nice. well with chocolate. You know what else goes really well with chocolate? What's that? Orange.
1: Oh, yeah. Jaffa.
0: Yeah. So, I actually have a orange, Mandarin orange seltzer water. Okay. That I get at the store. There's no calories. It's just soda water, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, I put a little apple cider vinegar in that and some uh, ice. And then I take a big spoonful of that chocolate mousse. Okay. Enough of that. I'm, getting, I'm, I'm, I'm desiring it now.
1: Yeah, I'm in the middle of a fast. Yeah, going, I'm I'm three sorry. Days into I'm the sorry. fast you're doing this to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, okay. Uh, but I also like savory fat bombs. Nice. Yeah, so I basically put together a fat bomb that uses cheese crisps. And those were a previous recipe very early on in our show. You just basically take some Parmesan or Asiago shredded, put it on a sill mat or a -hmm. parchment paper, 300 Fahrenheit degree oven, little scoops, maybe a little garlic powder, a little Italian seasoning, and Mm -hmm. let them get brown and crispy. And on that, I spread a little liverwurst. Now, I know you're saying- I've got to admit, mm. I'm
1: not a fan of liver. No, I I, 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 I can't cut to liver. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh,
0: so the liverwurst that I use is from Jones and it's Braunschweiger, which is essentially liverwurst mixed with bacon. Okay. Oh, that's bacon's good. Bacon's good. It doesn't really yeah. have that nasty liver flavor that you associate. Okay. But the reason I got this idea is because when we interviewed Nina Teicholz, she told us that liver is by far the most nutrient-dense meat you can eat.
1: I guess it makes sense because it's the organ that um, that does a lot of the work. So yeah. it's going to be ca- carrying a lot of the nutrients, yeah.
0: Yep. And uh, so I get this liverwurst, I put a little slice on there, and then, you know, the door is wide open. A little bacon, maybe yeah. a little brie, make a little sandwich, you know, just one or two of those. Is all you need, right, for a savory fat bomb?
1: Well, I could, I could, uh, yeah, I, 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 maybe I put a slice of bacon on instead of the liver. Worst, yeah, you
0: know, brie <laughs> and bacon go really, really well together. That's a nice savory fat bomb yeah. in and of itself. There's also oh, right, brie yeah. spread that you can get that doesn't have anything added. No, yeah, I found a brie spread. Wow, so it's kind of like soft cheese, but it's brie.
1: I think we just lost all of our French listeners. Yeah, I know.
0: There's a coming in a tube? Stupid Americans with your breeze spread. <laughs> no, you cannot put cheese whiz uh, on the duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now that sounds really good. The, uh, yeah, I I I I think I have uh, salami and cheese at night sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep. not a lot, but uh, same kind of thing. But but brie and uh, on on the Asiago. Yeah, uh, chip sounds delicious.
0: There it a is. Bit
1: of uh, meaty meatiness on top. Yum.
0: Yum yum yum. Well,
1: that's a show, Richard. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute what we've said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our
0: website. And join our Facebook group. You can get there at fb.2keto.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2ketodudes and also on Instagram at 2ketodudes. Yeah. And, hey, check out the Keto Fest we're doing next July, KetoFest.com. And, of course, yeah. if you're interested in that retreat, it's retreat2 Keep calm and keto on, my friend. Keep calm and keto on. All right. we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes.